I started a series in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I'm calling it the Reading Luke series. I gave you a little uh, handout pamphlet with kind of a cool graphic on it. And my goal for this series is to take us through the Gospel of Luke one chapter a week. Uh, That gives us an opportunity to really dive into that chapter a lot more deeply uh, than if I were to give us two, three, or four chapters, especially Luke, because Luke is a very, how shall I say it, loquacious uh, writer. He has very long chapters. Uh, So what's really helpful for us is to take one chapter at a time so that we might be able to really digest some of the material and really get a good grasp of it and also dive deeply into uh, what we're reading in each chapter from the Gospel of Luke. Last week I gave you a brief introduction to Luke as an author, to the Gospel as a whole, uh, and my hope is, is that as we make our way through, you will get a better understanding of uh, the Gospel and how Luke has written the story of Jesus and all of its beauty and creativity and the way he approached the telling of the story. And I also am really excited to give a little bit of time each week in the message for you to share maybe an observation or a question. If you come with your reading and you say, "Ah, you know what, I don't know what this word means, or I don't know what Luke's trying to say here, or I want to know more about this. I can't guarantee you that I'll have all the answers, but I do want to give space for questions and definitely opportunities for you to share things that you are observing. So as we make our way through Luke, uh, near the beginning of the message each week, I'm going to give a little bit of space for that, and I encourage you to share those questions, observations, or things that stand out to you. And then I'm going to come as well prepared to really focus in on one portion of that chapter uh, for us to really grapple with what God is saying to us and then also take application from it. So this is the time here at the beginning where I want to invite you, if you have, as you read Luke 1 and this week Luke 2, Anything that stood out to you, something that was curious, a question, an observation, uh, feel free to share. Yeah, David. Well, I don't want to take up all the time. I change up here. <laughs> sure, no worries. <laughs> He's uh, got his notes. First off, what's not written, uh, it's not necessarily loose for long chapters. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. But those who did learn the chapters had a hard time probably Yep. <laughs> um, and what, what did Joseph say? It doesn't say, he doesn't say, 
say, David, that's a really great list of observations. Uh, you, may, I, you can't see it under my mask, but I'm smiling ear to ear, uh, because that's exactly what I would hope we do. We dive into the text, and we ask those kinds of questions, 
And there are so many of those questions that we have no answers for, but they're the right kinds of questions to ask to really get deep into a text. We want to understand background. We want to understand culture. And then just to the point of the last one, because this one I have an answer for. So the idea of, and you already, you already alluded to this, kind of instinctively you moved in this direction. We talk about, yeah, going north, I'm going up to wherever, or south, going down to wherever. Well, that's a European concept. Because Europe, when the map makers, people leaving Europe to explore the world, uh, they drew the map with Europe at the middle, right? Because that's where they were from. And generally, most people writing maps did that, because you know one place and you're moving to another place and that's away from where you're from, right? But that very concept of how we orient with direction and think of it as up or down is a European concept. And there is a lot of value to what you said of the holiness and sacredness of a city like Jerusalem to the Jewish people, and it is up on a hill, altitude-wise, it's, it's high. It's easy to say, well, that's up, because you are literally going up, <laughs> not going north. You're going up a mountain to get to that place. Uh, and so that's one observation which I think is really, it may be small in terms of geography. You might think, okay, well, that's just a cool little fact. But there's actually a huge lesson in that. The huge lesson is that we come to the text with our own culture as a backdrop, right? We have our own lenses. I love being a glasses wearer because it helps me really illustrate this point super well. You come with a set of lenses because you've grown up in a specific culture. You have language that you were taught as a child. You have culture you were given as a child, tradition. Uh, all this kinds of stuff you bring to the reading and it will shape how you read. The more aware we are of our stuff, our lenses, our culture, our language, and how we bring that to a text, the more aware we can be of how we might actually distort what we're reading. And the better we can understand the culture of what was written, the better we can get it from their perspective, which is super important. We really do need to understand Jewish culture to understand Jesus, because he was Jewish. So the things about him having bar mitzvah at a certain age and these traditions they would follow and circumcision, all that stuff is so important to know because it helps us better understand what we're reading. And theologically, we get to a place of understanding the text and what, what God wants to say to us through it better when we really do that kind of work. Because God chose this people, he chose this culture, he chose this person in Jesus to be the revelation of who he is. And so it really does, it matters that we do that homework. So anyway, well done. Thank you for that awesome list of observations. Some great questions in there. Uh, and I think that that's exactly what I hope uh, invite you to bring. Uh, and you may not have as thorough of a list as David had, but feel free to bring your questions, bring your observations, things that stand out to you. Why, why is that that way? I, I think it's kind of funny, and I do want to point out that uh, Hollywood does take creative license when telling the Christmas story. Because urgency kind of draws us in, in a way that we want to know what's happening, right? So with the idea of, did they arrive right at the moment that Mary starts to go into labor? The Nativity Story, one of the best recent Christmas story depictions, it paints that picture. It makes it seem like as they're walking into Bethlehem, she starts going into labor, right? Boom! And it's like... It may have been that way, but it doesn't quite give us that sense of urgency here, right? So that's a really good thing to point out. The idea that there's an inn, Luke doesn't tell us. Are there more than one? Are they all full, right? 
did, did David or did uh, Joseph knock on every door in Bethlehem and you know even just people's homes and no one had room? We don't know a whole lot. We just know there's no place in this inn or this space. And even some scholars will tell you that the inn may have just been someone's private home, and they may have run it as a business, but it may not have been kind of like you know a Holiday Inn or anything like that that we know of today that's exclusively a business. So all that to say. Diving into the culture is a really important thing to do. It helps us understand the text better. It really gives us a way to understand uh, all the stuff that's going on, because some things are mysterious. And I love that you pointed out that Luke has a Gentile audience. He's really writing to people who have no cultural backdrop to Judaism. Most of them have grown up elsewhere in the Roman Empire, and they don't really know these traditions, rituals, celebrations of the Jewish people. And so Luke will explain, he'll, he'll kind of fill in some of that stuff for his readers, whereas Matthew assumes you get it, because he's a Jew writing predominantly to Jews. So a Jewish reader is going to be like, oh yeah, I know what, I know what Passover is, I know what that uh, Feast of Tabernacles is, I know what circumcision is. He doesn't explain stuff, because he knows he doesn't have to. That's a good observation, and that helps us understand the text better. All right, we've got time for one more. Anybody else have a question or an observation before I move into my thoughts on the text? It's a long chapter, and you're right. It's the English translators, and they're the ones who add the verses and chapters, so they made them long. But I think his stories are so long that they have to kind of sort it that way. But any other thoughts or questions from anybody? question and we don't know like concretely we don't have a lot to go on with Theophilus it very well could have been he's like really passionate about this guy who he wants to help edify in the faith um, and it very well could have been a, a literary practice to name his recipient in a way that is personal but then is also generic broad for all people he wants to read this right so he wants everyone who's a lover of God to know the story of Jesus that's totally possible. So I wish, I wish we knew. And someday we can ask that question. I would knock on that gate and say, excuse me, Jesus, uh, was Luke really writing to a specific guy? Or <laughs> but it's a great question because that too is an important backdrop thing to understand if we can know it. Uh, because in some cases, like with New Testament letters, who, knowing who Paul or James or John is writing to, or Peter, Knowing who they're writing to, knowing their context, the city they're living in, the culture they're living in, because all those cities in the Roman Empire had microculture. Right? Ephesus is very different from Colossae, and Rome is very different from Judea. Like knowing that stuff can be very helpful for understanding why an author is writing to that particular group and what he's writing about. It's really, really good questions to ask. 
Well, this is really, really good. You got my juices flowing. I'm really excited for all this. Uh, I'm looking forward to more questions and observations. And don't feel like you have to limit it to this little sliver of time in the message. If you come up with a question or observation you'd like to ask in a different way, send me an email, and I'd be happy to plug that in. Uh, for those of you watching on Facebook and YouTube, you can comment on the post and just say, hey, here's my question, or here's an observation I have, and I can share those the following week. The thing that really strikes me about Luke 2, and there are multiple pieces of this chapter that are really powerful for us, but there's something that Luke does that I think is profoundly unique, and many scholars have written on this, so this isn't just my opinion or my take, but I find it absolutely fascinating and inspiring about who Luke chooses to write about. Because every historian makes choices, right? And I think Luke follows God's lead on who to, to elevate in the story. So every story has characters, right? Every story is going to have characters in it. They're going to do things. They're going to go places. They're going to say stuff. And all that an author does in telling a story is make a bunch of choices about who's going to get a voice. Who's going to be in the front, foreground? Who's going to be in the background? Those are big choices that every author makes. God chooses, God chooses first to come as a human being, as a baby in, a, in an animal trough. That's God's choice. God does that. Two people have told us this, Matthew and Luke, but we see God making a choice to do it that way. He doesn't choose to have his incarnate son born in a palace. He doesn't have his incarnate son born in Rome at the center of power. He has his son born in an animal trough in a backwater town in a, in a possessed piece of land by a foreign empire. That's where, he's, that's where God comes into the picture. That's how God begins the story of Jesus, is to bring himself in that way. I think Luke follows his lead and elevates characters who were there who no one else would have included in the story. And those are, for me, the shepherds. When I read this story, and I see this group of people who literally lived on the margins, okay? Their life is a metaphor for everyone who's lived on margins, because they don't live in the city. They live outside, in the pastures, with their sheep, day and night. They might bring the sheep into town every once in a while, get their fleeces off, or sell sheep to people, but most of the time they're living out in the pasture. So they're hardly ever seen, they're not very clean, they don't have a good reputation in terms of bodily hygiene. I mean, we're talking about very out there, on the margins people. And Luke says, God chose to send angels to tell them about his son. The angels didn't go to the palace in Jerusalem to tell Herod or anybody else. The angels didn't go to Rome and declare it in front of Caesar. The angels that God sends go to the people on the margins. Hey, guess what? There's good news of great joy. I want you to go in and see this baby. Because this baby's the chosen one, the Messiah, the King of Kings. You get to be first witnesses at his birth. God chose all these things. And that's a beautiful story. And it challenges something in us. Because if we look at history, any even just basic cursory look at history will show you that the people in power are usually the main characters. Right? When we look back and you think about history classes you've taken in high school or college, the people that you read about were 
Genghis Khan and Egyptian pharaohs and Caesars of Rome and presidents of the United States, right? These are the people who we heard stories about. That's who history is generally told about. And we hear about empires and power and war, right? But very rarely do we get the story of the people on the ground, the everyday average common person. Now, the beautiful thing is that this is not limited just to Luke 2. This is actually the Bible as a whole. When we read the story of the scriptures, there's about a tiny little sliver of about 100 years where Israel has tremendous power. Saul, David, and Solomon. That little sliver of time, they had an empire in a way. They had a lot of power, a lot of wealth, very strong military, all that kind of stuff, for three generations. Outside of that, what else do you get? Slavery and exile. Oppression. This people who write down their story, sensing God moving through them, for the vast majority of their story, they are not the people in power. They're not the people at the top. They're the people at the bottom. And it's in a way, for me, it's very edifying, and it's a proof of the authenticity of, of Scripture's revelation of God's identity in that this story survived because so many other stories like this didn't because power shapes the story. To acknowledge that is very important. We look at this story in Luke 2 and we see God choosing to come from the bottom up. This is how God enters the world. Luke just follows God's lead and says, this is your story, God, and here, let's tell that story from the bottom up. In Luke 1... Caesar makes this massive decree of power. Everyone go to your hometown to get counted, right? And everyone's got to move to do it. God's declaration is a baby in a manger down here on the ground level of everyday human existence in poverty in a tiny little town that hardly anybody's heard about, right? That's where God's decree comes. Caesar's up here, God's over here. And if that's the way God operates, we have to ask ourselves, is that the way we see the world? Do we see the small? Do we see the margins like God elevates in his story? Or do we buy into that view of power that says those are the stories we're telling? Just the powerful stories or the stories about those in power. In a way, I think that this telling of the story of the shepherds is sort of a critique of human nature. It tells us to be mindful of who we center, right? Whose story we center and how, how we elevate those stories. Personally, I've been on a journey the last two years of actively seeking the writing of people who are on the margins in our culture. Because I want to listen to the voices of people who would be like 21st century Jewish shepherds. I want to understand where they're coming from. I want to know what their life experience is like. Because that's where God is actively moving, is from the bottom up. God cares about those who society neglects. And that's really important for us to see. Eventually, at the end of this chapter, we get this unique and powerful snippet of Jesus' life where he's, a, he's basically a teenager. He's 12, right? But he's an adolescent. And it's the only portion of that time of his life that we get. And I, I just crave more information. <laughs> I want to know what it's like. What was it like for Jesus from age 12 to age 20? Like, I want to know more about that time. But this is all we get is this little sliver 
And so it's a very important story in a lot of ways. And some of which you pointed out, David, is unique because we get a little bit of insight into what it was like for a Jewish boy to become a Jewish man, the rite of passage, uh, the part of going to the temple with his family for special rituals. All that's very important. Now, for me, I find that there are several invitations in this chapter for us. One invitation is to follow God to the margins. God's story starts in the margins in Luke's Gospel. There are margins around us today. There are places around us today where there are people whose society pushes out to the margins. Society says they're not as important as others. But as followers of Jesus, we say that's not right. Because God did this. This is who God is. Our God goes to the margins. We go to the margins. We can elevate the voices that our culture doesn't elevate. We can say, hey, have you read this book by this African-American author? I think you need to read it, because then you get a better perspective on what life is like for a person who's African-American living in our culture, or someone who's Latino, or someone who doesn't speak English as their native language. There's so many people who live marginalized within our society and culture, and we can follow God by elevating their voices. Another invitation that I think is is radically profound is that God takes the time to experience the full spectrum of human experience. He experienced human childbirth as a baby. And he did it in a very challenging place. God came as a baby in a manger. God experienced adolescence. God experienced young adulthood. God experienced eating and parties, and talking, conversation, and travel, and culture. God experienced human experience. No other religion tells, that, tells us that their God does that. Their God is aloof somewhere, and you've got to wake him up because he sleeps all the time. Or they have multiple gods, you've got to wake up, and sometimes they get angry at you. Our God came down to be with us as one of us. That is amazing. It blows my mind to think about it. And there's a powerful, beautiful truth in recognizing that our God loves us so much, he wants to experience our life with us. We are never alone. We are never abandoned by our God. He walks with us everywhere. He knows what it's felt like to be in our shoes, literally. He knows the pain of grief. Jesus went to funerals. Jesus lost loved ones. He cried. Jesus experienced pain and sorrow. Jesus experienced joy and celebration. He knows all those things as we know them. As an incarnated body, he knows them. So our God is with us, and that's beautiful. It's beautiful to recognize the truth that God goes with us everywhere we go. We're never alone. We can trust God has experienced what we've experienced because he loves us. And he wants us to know he's with us. I hope and pray that this has been a blessing for you as it has been for me. Uh, Going through Luke 2, I love the Christmas story. It's one of my favorite parts of the scriptures. And as we continue to progress through the Gospel of Luke, I just invite you to read. I read Luke 2 five times, so almost every day this week. I missed a couple of days, but I was like, oh, this is so good, just to marinate in the story, to read it once a day and think about it throughout the day and 
be kind of imagining myself in the story, having questions and observations like David listed, and I got into it and imagined myself as I was, as if I was a shepherd, as if I was an angel declaring this good news, as if I was Mary and Joseph on a long journey. I, I took myself and put myself in different character shoes. So do that for yourself. Let the story just fill you throughout the week. Read it every morning and then go about your day meditating on what you read and see what God elevates to the surface. So for next week, Luke chapter 3. I invite you to read it. Come with questions, come with observations. If you feel more comfortable sharing those with me, send me an email and I'd be happy to bring them up or just respond to your email either way. So whatever you'd like to do, feel free to utilize me as a resource as you reflect on the text. I want to close with a word of prayer. Uh, and then I invite you to just stick around and enjoy fellowship. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for this powerful story. Luke chapter 2 shows us how much you're willing to do to bring your love to earth. You became a baby in a manger. A vulnerable, powerless baby. And yet, that's God. That's you. And we thank you, Lord, for the gift of your presence. Emmanuel, God with us. Remind us of this every day this week. Remind us that you are near. That we can take comfort in your presence. That we can be encouraged by your voice leading us like our shepherd. Like a shepherd guides their sheep. Speak to us through Luke chapter 3 as we read it this week. Help us to really dive into the text. Imagine ourselves in all the character's shoes. Imagine the story to listen carefully for you where you're speaking to us. Help us to hear your voice clearly. Help us to follow you. We thank you, Lord, for our opportunity to study together today, and we pray that you bless us this week. Go before us, protect us, and guide us. Help us to be beacons of light and hope to all those in our sphere of influence. We pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Blessings, everyone. Feel free to stick around and enjoy some fellowship time.